Good morning, campers. Today's activities will include me getting into bed and then getting out of bed, and then I'm going to have a shower, and then I'm going to get out of bed again and go down to the lobby, and then I'll come back, and then I'm going to get into bed, and then, no, wait, hold on a second. I forgot something in the lobby. Let me just, you take it from here, Sarah. Come, 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 come. Lunch today will be champagne. I don't care if you don't drink alcohol. You're drinking champagne. <laughs> and to end the night, we will be stealing the most fabulous diamond in the world. Or will the we? Or have baseball we? diamond? No, the other fabulous diamond. <laughs> so put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into the Pink Panther. Pink Panther. Mariska Hargate, Sarah. I am your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler and trainer in training. Leave that in. (laughs) And current (laughs) drag wrestling manager. Well, it's hard to fit on a business card, but I'm sure you'll make it work. I'm camp counselor, Sarah, a very white Indian princess. And we're going to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. So Sam, why did you choose for us to uh, watch a brand of insulation on this week? <laughs> well, I figured I'm not itchy enough. So... <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I I chose this because I have fond childhood memories of this, mm-hmm. like this this whole series of films, because it's one of those things. My my granddad watches a lot of movies and TV. He doesn't remember everything he watches, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he certainly talks about it in one of those ways of <laughs> Sam. The other night, I watched this film. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't like it. Uh Uh-huh. What was it called? Oh, I can't remember. Who was in it? Oh, I can't remember. (laughs) What was it about? I can't remember. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thanks for narrowing it down. But when we were kids, and when I say we, I mean my brothers, my cousins, my... um, he had very specific films he wanted to share with us because they were films that he watched not as a kid, but as a young adult that left a, an impression in his mind that he shared with his kids. And he's, it's very much one of those, like, I want to share it with you guys because it's important to watch older things as well, not just mm-hmm. modern things. Right. So we watched uh, like one of my favorite musicals, Oliver, Mm-hmm. A lot, Doctor Doolittle and the Pink Panther movies. It's and funny; I never thought of that connection. Sorry, but yeah, my grandma did the exact same thing, except our movie was The Great Race, which is a similar, like, wacky balls to the wall comedy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, it, and I think it was really nice. I think it was very formative because now my cousins and I and my brothers we have this these memories of watching the Pink Panther films not always understanding them per se right Mm -hmm. but watching them and appreciating the the comedy now I chose the first Pink Panther because I was like 
Inspector Clouseau, he is camp. He is definitely camp. I know this in my heart of hearts. Let's watch the first one. And if we like the first one enough, we'll go into the next ones, which features more Inspector Clouseau, right? And uh, my surprise upon surprise of watching this again after who knows how many years of not having watched this and going, wow, oh, wow, is Inspector Clouseau not in this film enough? <laughs> That's the thing. While they were making it, they were like, oh, this is working. And they increased his role. So I have no idea how much he was ever in the original. Yeah, you have to think. Like, this this wouldn't have been an early role for Peter Sellers, but this is definitely his sort of star-making turn. Mm -hmm. uh, and led into, I mean, him being ubiquitous with Inspector Clouseau and the Pink Panther as a thing to the point where um, David Niven was going to go on stage at the Oscars one year and like beforehand in the rehearsals, they said, yeah, we'll play the Pink Panther theme because, you know, that's that's from your movie. And Niven's was just like, no, you fucking won't, because that <laughs> is not my movie. <laughs> because it, it did really become about Peter Sellers. Uh, I mean, that's, that's part of the, the background information that I had for this film. Yeah. I did uh, not go into this inspecting it to be like a gentleman thief, sexy farce bed hopping caper. Yeah. Yeah. It's really unusual because you have in your mind, like from, from our modern perspective, you have in your mind this idea. It would be like finding out that James Bond was actually introduced in a movie previous to Dr. No called uh, Q and the unbearable lightness of making gadgets. James <laughs> <laughs> Bond, yes. Yes, right? Because he's just, he's so ubiquitous with the Pink Panther brand, right? It's Peter Sellers. He's, he's such a funny goofy, goofy goofums. And this is him at his least goofy goofums, I would definitely <laughs> say. Yeah, it, the, the movie, it's a bit weird to watch on your own for the first time, I will say that, because you can definitely tell they edited in a crowd with uh, large chunks of hilarious laughter that when you watch by yourself are largely silent. Um, <laughs> It was a different time, uh, Sarah. They didn't. They didn't foresee lockdown uh, when making this movie from 1963. <laughs> no, it was the 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 world was in a great place. It was post World War II. Look at how much money we have. Look how international we are. Blah 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 blah. Hedonism. Four floppy-haired boys from Liverpool were about to change music forever. Yes, they were using their evil and illicit science experiments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, darling, tell us some background on this movie. <laughs> okay. So, came out in 1963, uh, directed by Blake Edwards, written by Blake Edwards and Maurice Richland. Edwards is a fairly famous director, having directed films like the party which i would very much like to cover but we probably won't cover because its whole premise ra rests on one 
racist joke. It, it's the premise of the party is that it's Peter Sellers uh-huh. who's ac- who's accidentally been invited to a very high class function. Hilarious. I can see it already. Yeah. Peter Sellers plays an Indian man. Oh boy. Yeah. So like it, it, it is a funny movie. It is regarded as a very funny movie because it's a lot of pratfalls, a lot of uh, whoops, I did the wrong thing at the wrong place at the wrong time, and oh no, I knocked over a vase, and now I'm trying to put the vase back and knocking other things over and that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But he is in brownface the whole film and doing the accent. And like I said, I would love to cover the film, but... But, right, so seek it out on your own, guys, if you do want to watch it. Uh, Like I said, it's a funny movie. It's just real unfortunate that it is of the time. Blake Edwards was also married to Julie Andrews. Oh, was he? I had no idea. Okay. Well, For years and years until his death, I believe. Oh, well, good for them. He also directed Breakfast at Tiffany's. Most of the Pink Panther movies, oddly enough, you so rarely get a director who is like, I'm going to do basically all of the sequels to this film. The only other exception I can think is Michael Bay with the Transformers movies. Please stop, Michael Bay. We've had enough. (laughs) And uh, Paul W.S. Anderson and most of the Resident Evil films. Yeah. And uh, he also directed Victor Victoria. Oh, okay. See, that makes sense with the Julie Andrews thing. All I know about Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews is also uh, she was in one of his movies where she takes her top off and everybody was horribly scandalized because it was perfect darling Julie Andrews. Yeah, that's a bit wild. I had no idea. Yeah. So the movie stars David Niven above... Above the title, David Niven, <laughs> Peter Sellers, uh, potential murderer, Robert Wagner, uh, and Claudia Cardinale, who is dubbed over the entire performance by one Gail Garnett as Princess Dahl. It's a Dalla. really good dub job. I did not know until afterwards. It is a very good dub job. Uh, and I've seen all kinds of levels of dubbing. This is top tier. You would not know. I mean, mm-hmm. Claudia Cardinale also looks like a time traveling Catherine Zeta Jones. Absolutely. It's <laughs> spooky, right? <laughs> she, it, it's almost spot like, on. Like Catherine Zeta Jones from 1999 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Frightening. Stunningly gorgeous, but does oh, not yeah. get enough to do in this film. Both and, women in this are very funny and don't have a ton to do. Yeah, and the other female star being Capucine. A monkey? <laughs> I, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Sarah, as you kill me with a joke. <laughs> because listening to one of our episodes yesterday, which just uh-huh. dropped, you keep on saying these jokes that are so left field. That I'm driving home and dying. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, I love it. 
I love you. I love you for doing this because <laughs> I will say something and then you'll do like there are jokes that I expect, and then you come in and you're just like, fuck those jokes. I'm gonna make a monkey joke. What? <laughs> okay, but you understand the cappuccino. Right? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Okay. I do. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like, you might not understand me. I'm pretty random. Oh, God. <laughs> God, uh, I'm so thankful you are not one of those people. Thanks. I just have a really random sense of, no, it's, <laughs> your sequitur makes sense. It's just thank not you. the sequitur I'm expecting. <laughs> And that's why it's extra funny. So thank, thank you, you, darling. Sarah. Thank you. I'd like to give you, uh, is it Camp's highest honor, uh, the Wow, You Make Sam Die Every Week award. <laughs> it's a flower that you put in your lapel, but it squirts water up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how silly. We, we pin it on you in a very formal ceremony. Yeah, it is. There's lords and ladies and leaping lizards. <laughs> So we have <laughs> Capuchin and Catherine Zeta Jones. Two absolute smoke shows in this movie. Stunning. Stunning. Uh, the the whole film look of this movie. We'll get to it when we get to like the chalet yeah. and all that. But absolutely gorgeous. I would watch this movie like on silence. It is dripping with class. Yeah. Even in its goofiest scenes. You're just like, this is an expensive film. This this is like how crazy rich Asians feels. I was gonna say Thunderbirds, weirdly enough, but do you get what I mean with that whole same like space age kind of look? Yeah, yeah. I, I just mean with crazy rich Asians, that that feeling of decadence and opulence. Yeah. And then luxury. you look at the, then you look at the budget for crazy rich Asians and you go, No, that's that's not the money you spent. You yeah. spent ten times that about. So, yeah, the movie grossed $10.9 million in Canada and the U.S. with an 88% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It was selected in 2010 uh, to be preserved uh, by the American Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Originally, it, this was designed to be a vehicle for David Nivens. Hmm, huh, how funny that happened. Yeah. And it became evident during filming that he was not the fucking star. <laughs> that <laughs> Sellers is now the star. And that's why all the sequels focus on him going forward. Yeah. Except, except for one sequel, kind of. Uh, the soundtrack reached number eight on Billboard magazine's pop album chart at the time. Great soundtrack. I mean, it's, everybody knows the theme, but all throughout, it's incredible. Yeah. I want to get to one group of things first, but I want to do uh, a background on one of the actors of the film. Can you guess which actor I'm going to talk about? Um, I'm going to guess that you're going to talk about Peter Sellers. But wait! What? what? All the cars huh? and windows are walking. Oh, no. a little man on a tricycle. Oh, dear. Um, would you like to play a game? Robin, did you get a lozenge? Your voice sounds so much better. <laughs> I, I've been working on my vocal exercises. Thank you. Okay, is yes. It, what is what is the game? Is it camp? Lightning round! Lightning round? Crack-a-coom! Crack-a-coom! 
insert castle lightning sound here. Shake some baking sheets just off stage. Yeah. Ready? As I'll ever be. I don't care. Watches. <laughs> Not camp. Star Wars. Not camp. Drink umbrellas. Camp. T-shirts with funny phrases. Not camp. Puffy stickers. Camp. Scratch and sniff stickers. Camp. Ascots. Camp. Shag carpet. Camp. Miniature train sets. Camp. Cocktails. Camp. Well, you survive this one, Sam. He tries to uh, wheel backwards, but tricycles don't have a back gear, so he kind of has to turn around and do a three-point turn. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Goodbye, Robin. Good night. Hey. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to do background information on an actor while I make my cocktail with a nice little umbrella. <laughs> uh, no, it's not going to be Peter Sellers because, Is you know what? No. Ooh. Screw it. I don't want to talk about those two because, quite frankly, Peter Sellers is a very fraught person. Um, He's a troubled man. Yeah, a very troubled man. If you want to see a really good uh, sort of film slash miniseries about it. It's The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, starring Jeffrey Rush as Peter Sellers, and a whack load of incredible performers with him, like Naomi Watts. Mm. Right. So he's he's a funny man, but it's definitely one of those, the funniness is there to cover up all kinds of troubles in his life. And I don't want to be a downer here. Have so you I'm seen, um, just... Real quickly, have you seen his performance on The Muppet Show? No, I haven't. It's this great bit where he comes out dressed as Queen Victoria. And Kermit says, like, but Peter, you're you're the guest star. We wanted Peter Sellers. And he's like, but I, I can't be Peter Sellers. I don't know who Peter Sellers is. I can be Queen Victoria for you. That's funny and sad all at the same time. Yeah, that's sort of the Peter Sellers thesis statement. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, poor man. Yeah. Anyway, I want to talk about Capucine. Ooh, go on. Yeah. Because she's stunning. And the way she's introduced in this film, when we get to it, is just like, oh, I know exactly who this woman is off the top. Mm-hmm. Th- this is brilliant. So, Capucine was born in 1928 in Saint-Raphaël, Var, France. Uh, but later in life, she would often lie about when she was born, saying it was either 31 or 33, not 28. Fair so, enough, darling. She's one of the original, like, oh, I'm 29 <laughs> kind yeah. of girls, right? Her original name was Germaine Hélène Irène Lefebvre. Got it? February. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in 1945, at the age of 17, she was spotted in Paris, France, while riding in a carriage by... <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Did you think I was going to say Texas? Ontario. Ontario. Paris, Ontario. You know, home of, of many a model. It was the specificity. It was the fact that you felt the need to specify. I need to specify, okay? Like, the last... <laughs> No, no, this is this is really important. Okay. I think you and I talked about this before at some point, maybe off off camera, <laughs> off camera, where uh, there's there's this whole thing nowadays that we're figuring ancient uh, building materials out because at the time when they wrote down the instructions for certain, some building materials or some recipes, they didn't specify certain things. So like, mm -hmm. there's the uh, the ancient Roman or Greek method of making uh, a weathering, a weatherproof concrete, essentially. Mm -hmm. And one of the instructions is add water, you know, this much water. Yeah. But what they didn't specify was that it was salt water, mm. right? It had to be from the ocean. And th at the time, they would be like, yeah, what, what other kind of water would we use? Like, everybody knows that it's salt water. So all we have to write down is how much of the water you need to use which made future people looking back at this recipe go like, yeah, uh, right. So we keep trying to add water, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do the thing. So we're pretty sure they're either just liars or they're missing something. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like how uh, a recipe right now, like for omelets says, you know, use four eggs, but yeah. imagine a society 2000 years in the future where they go, well, what kind of eggs? Yeah. Right. Maybe chickens have died out by the time it gets there. So specificity matters because in the future, somebody might be listening to this episode and saying like, oh yeah, the hub of activity, Paris, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I, I feel certain when I was a kid watching YTV that there, when they, when they would have you like enter a contest or something, uh, they required things to be sent to either Paris or London, Ontario. And as a result, I was certain that, number one, it was a bustling hub of TV <laughs> production. And number two, it must be the coolest place in the world, because that's where YTV is. Uh, to, to, uh, to people who didn't grow up in Canada, it's the children's television show um, or a television channel. So it would be kind of equivalent of like the Nickelodeon headquarters or something like that. Mm -hmm, definitely and you know it's that childish like oh yeah london ontario banger so far away so so cool <laughs> god if i drove here from my house it would take me like three hours and that's forever exactly <laughs> so in 1945, at the age of 17, she was spotted in Paris, France, or riding in a carriage by a commercial photographer. And this led her to becoming a model for Givenchy and Christian Dior. In the late 40s, early 50s, to be working in Paris with those designers would be absolutely incredible. That's creation of new looks. That's uh, the thing that I still aspire to every day. <laughs> <laughs> So it was at this time that she also became close friends with Audrey Hepburn while modeling, and they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah. yeah. Because it's like, why, why the fuck not? Yes. Right, uh, Do you know my good friend Audrey Hepburn and her pet deer? 
Yeah, you know, wartime hero, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, in 19... uh, Hold on, I'm having a look. 1957, while in New York doing modeling, she was spotted by producer Charles K. Feldman, where he convinced her you have the right stuff. We can take you to Hollywood. We're going to make you a fucking star. And not in a creepy way either. Like legitimately, <laughs> like we're going to make you a star. And at this point, she was given $150 a week, which is roughly $1,500 in today's money. Not too bad. Not too bad. And this is where she took the name Capucine after a uh, kind of flower, <laughs> stating in a later interview, two names are interesting. And I hope one name is interesting. <laughs> it's like, hell yeah, girl. Yeah. Do it. Pave the road. Like the it's original shit. Literally. Air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, uh, she also looks like the kind of person who could carry off just one name. Oh my gosh. There's just so much about her that screams glamour and screams like <laughs> this old thing. Oh, yes, yeah, exactly. You know, my, my good friend Christian Dior gave it to me. Yeah. Uh, so she signed a seven-year contract with Columbia in 1958 and uh, went on to star in a couple films, uh, but the big one was something called Song Without End about Franz Liszt. Mm-hmm. Listomania. And- Mm-hmm. In this film, uh, it was the producer, William Gertz, who, who was credited <laughs> as saying, you can teach a girl to act, but nobody can teach you how to look like a princess. So what you have to do is you start with a girl who looks like a princess. And this is why she was cast in that film, because she looks like a princess. She screams money. She had a series yeah. of hits. It led to a Golden Globe nomination for her. Uh, But her career kind of capped off in 1968 due to one giant factor, Charles K. Feldman, the original producer who spotted her in New York. He'd kind of been her champion for those last, for those 10 years. He'd been the guy going out and being, I want her in this film. I want to make this film with her. I want this script. Here you go. You know, have a look at that. We're going to make this. We're going to do this, right? And this is what got her into the Pink Panther and tons of other films at the time, right? Getting her top built spots. He died, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So without a champion, her star began to, to really fall at that point. She continued to work, but uh, never to the degree and the success that she had in the 50s, 60s. She would later come back for two of the Pink Panther sequels. She did a lot of appearances in uh, movies and TV shows, but part of the reason she wasn't getting cast was that a lot of casting directors looked at her and said, this woman is too glamorous. She's, (laughs) it really was a detriment to her. Like you have been typecast as a glamorous, gorgeous, above it all woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And she went on record saying that she would have loved to have played a disheveled woman for once in her life. But it it was just like, nah, 
even if we slap a bunch of mud on you and mess up your hair, you're still like, it would be like taking Angelina Jolie and say, well, now you're a poor pigsty woman. And there's Angelina Jolie standing there absolutely flawless with a spot of mud on her face. Absolutely. Um, I recall David Fincher, I believe, told Scarlett Johansson that she would have been his first choice to play Lisbeth Salander in the um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movie, but he couldn't cast her because she's Scarlett Johansson, and it doesn't matter how good an actor she is, the fact that she's Scarlett Johansson is going to overwhelm the whole movie. But Scarlett Johansson can play any race and any <laughs> gender identity. So I don't know what he was talking about. I could cast her as a as a, a tree and I would still be absolutely convinced that woman is a tree. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I kind of agree with him there. This is just, but I do oh think it's God. a shame, too, that, you know, Scarlett Johansson can act very well in some cases, but she's so much the sex pot that like nobody would take her seriously otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, now that she's post-MCU, I'm sure she's going to go back to trying out different things anyway. And hopefully um, kind of staying in her lane when it comes to playing people of uh, different ethnicities or no, gender expression. Yes. Yeah. Uh, woof. So, um, Capucine was only married once in 1945 for eight months to Pierre Trabeau. She did have a relationship with Feldman for a while, but uh, it never really worked out between the two of them. And they, of course, stayed friends for the rest of his life. Mm hmm. Uh, on his death, he left her $75,000, which is roughly a little over half a million in today's money. She would later meet and have an affair with William Holden, starting, on the, set, yeah, starting on the set of The Lion in 1962. But mm -hmm. he was married at the time, and she eventually ended the relationship when his alcoholism became too much of a problem. Uh, that's the, the last sentence of any story involving William Holden. Kind of, right? And uh, But they remained friends until he died in 81, where uh, he also left her $50,000, <laughs> which it's a weird trajectory of, I keep meeting these men and being friends with them, and then they die and leave me money. So why can't that happen to me? Come on. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're traveling in the wrong circles altogether. We need to get into that... Uh chalet in the movie mm -hmm. now i'm gonna get to the unfortunate part of this mm -hmm. in 1990 uh capucine did uh go through with suicide where she jumped to her death from her eighth floor apartment window in switzerland where she had lived for 23 years at the age of 62 uh, she'd been suffering from illness and depression for quite some time. Uh, she had three cats and basically her neighbors were like, she rarely came out of her apartment. She spent most of her time reading and uh, she'd become a recluse by that point. And it's really unfortunate that such a fabulous woman uh, somebody who clearly she was a bit of a she she'd been everywhere she 
born in France, Hollywood, New York, traveled as a model, traveled as an actress. Uh, yeah, that her life ended that way. But I mean, this, this is why I'm so thankful that we're talking more and more about mental health issues nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it's really coming to the forefront of, hey, you know, we got to take better care of each other. And like, we aren't just commodities. People in any, uh, granted, she's she was wealthy and she was beautiful and mm-hmm. fabulous and glamorous, but even just everybody suffers, right? I can't believe I've never heard of Capuchin's life before. Because like, this would make an amazing movie. She... Like you say, you know, she was fabulously wealthy and beautiful and had famous friends and all that. But also, she's genuinely talented and hilarious in this movie. She is gluing Mm -hmm. the movie together. And how is it that we've, everybody knows the Pink Panther, but nobody's heard of Capuchin? And that's, that's really why I wanted to talk about her was as I was investigating, investigating, (laughs) I say that like I did deep research and I did not, but uh, as I was reading up, because I, I was like, do I want to talk about David Niven? Not mm-hmm. really. Do I want to talk about Peter Sellers? I mean, while he is the star of this film, I figure maybe we'll get to him in the future. Mm-hmm. But I also just, I don't want to talk about how dark that is. And yep. then looking into Capucine, I'm like, why is she called Capucine? I need to know. what. Who is this beautiful woman? And reading through this, it's just like, she lived a rich life she did things she went places she had friends in all kinds of sort of high society areas and you're just like hell yeah girl this amazing so i want to i want to give props to capucine because it feels like nobody else is right now oh yeah i am looking right now there is at least one biography of her so i'm gonna take a look at that after this Great, cool. Yeah. So I wanted to move briefly before we get to the film itself from unfortunately a little downer of a note to something a little more jovial and fun. Let's talk about breakout characters because <laughs> this is this is the film that kind of created the breakout character. And yes. Wikipedia lists this as a character in serial fiction who begins as part of an ensemble cast or a background character who rises to prominence due to audience feedback. The so Urkel. Go. Yeah, the Urkel is the pinnacle of background characters in, who become breakout characters because Family Matters was a show about this family. Yeah. And occasionally their weird neighbor, Steve Urkel, which eventually became Family Matters, the show about Steve Urkel and this family he harangues for exactly. half an hour. His family who is at his mercy. <laughs> it is hell. It is Urkel's hell. And he is king. So I've got a bunch of different characters from various things who uh, who did that. I mean, the first one that pops up under, under film is Clouseau. He is yep. the originator of the breakout character, basically. You know, followed by Boba Fett. Mm, right? Yeah. Phil, Phil Coulson. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, and the Minions. <laughs> yes, the Minions are a pretty small part of the first movie. 
Yeah, but they have become a cultural force. You can barely move for Minions shit whenever (laughs) you go into a Walmart. Exactly. There's no Gru cereal, but there is Minion cereal. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can see this trend repeating in all kinds of places. So, for example, in uh, animation, uh, Porky Pig, Bugs Bunny, and Woody Woodpecker were all originally just like background characters in an ensemble thing, but they all rose to prominence being their own major people. That's Uh, a weird thing, too, when it's something that's not one person's performance. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you see it with uh, Bullwinkle J. Moose, Harley Quinn, Butters Stotch, Stewie Griffin, and later X-23, or currently known as Wolverine. Yes, yes. That's what I was trying to think of, the Wolverine effect. I knew that I, yes. there was something that I could think of that was like this, but I couldn't. Yeah, it's the put Wolverine on the cover no matter what, even if he's not in it. Yeah, I, I mean, Wolverine is, is kind of a, a, a peak version of this because Wolverine started as a minor character in an Incredible Hulk ca- uh, comic that really? Hulk fight. Yeah. Hulk accidentally goes up. What's up, Mom? Oh, okay. She's turning up the heat because she's too cold. Oh, no. Um, Yeah. Wolverine started off as a minor character in an Incredible Hulk comic because Hulk goes up to Canada to fight the Wendigo, and then Wolverine shows up, and he's also, eh, bub, you can't come around here and, you know, snick, snick, smash, smash. (laughs) They go their separate ways. And then they, he was liked so much that Dave Cockrum and uh, Chris Claremont picked him up for, uh, Unc- not at the time Uncanny X-Men, X-Men Second Genesis, which was the international team of X-Men with Storm, Nightcrawler, Banshee, Thunderbird, and St- uh, Sunfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, Wolverine really pulled focus because he had this mysterious past. Who is he? You don't even see Wolverine's face for the first couple of issues of X-Men. It's not for several issues later that he takes the hood down and you go, oh shit, his hair is in the shape of his hood. Oh, he has a name. You don't know his name until ages later, which is bizarre, right? Mm -hmm. And then later on, they introduce uh, characters like Sabretooth, who was originally an Iron Fist villain. They introduce... Um, X-23 in the 2000s X-Men Evolution cartoon who became such a big hit she transferred over to the comics she was originally a clone of Wolverine who uh, was given a a second X chromosome instead of a Y chromosome because all the Y chromosome attempts at cloning had failed and oh, I thought you were going to her- say they used all of the X chromosomes no, no, no. They, they, they tried to make a, a male clone of it, but it stuck as a female. So she came out and they trained her to be a, an assassin and whatnot. And so she's had a successful career initially as X-23. But later on, like in the current run of comics, she goes by Wolverine as well. Right. And both of them are Wolverine. Later on, uh, we introduce other characters like... Okay, there, there are so many Wolverines right now. Wolverine has a son called Dokken, who is, 
the son he had with uh, Mariko, the Yakuza clan member. He's a bisexual disaster boy. (laughs) (laughs) there's also Wolverine's son from an alternate uh, alternate universe who's currently in the main Marvel universe, who's kind of got a Venom thing going on with a weird symbiote. There is a magic girl Wolverine with diamond claws. She's magic. <laughs> who's also <laughs> his daughter. Uh, there is a clone of X-23 called Gabby, who calls herself Honey Badger. <laughs> she's, she's dope. She's great. Into the Wolververse. Uh, it really is into the Wolververse because you also have, you know, Sabretooth, who's basically a Wolverine. You have uh, an evil android Wolverine running around out there called Albert. You have, I'm trying to think of all of the Wolverines. There's so many Wolverines. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a, a miniseries called Too Many Wolverines. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Wolverine is like, at, there was a time at which Wolverine in the 2000s was on the Avengers. He was having his solo adventures. He was part of three different X-Men teams. And it's just like, there's is he running around the planet currently? <laughs> does, he have, does he have very good cardio? Wolverine, 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 Wolverine. And then they killed him off and allowed other Wolverine characters. Oh, there's also a Wolverine called Jonathan who went through the similar Weapon X program. A legitimate Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've told this story before on the, uh, on the podcast. But when he got the role, Hugh Jackman started researching the animal Wolverine and they had to tell him, no, there's no, no. <laughs> Absolutely none. But, uh, all right, let's get into a couple other notable background characters who became huge. Fonzie, Mm. right, from uh, Happy Days. Elmo from Sesame Street. Dr. Fraser Crane. Worf. uh, Tommy Oliver, the green Power Ranger from Power Rangers. Mr. Blobby. Spike from Buffy. You can't just throw Mr. Blobby in there and expect this to continue like normal. Oh, okay. All right. How do I explain Mr. Blobby to North American audiences? He looks like a... a, a uh, He looks like a diagram of a cell, is what he looks like. (laughs) So he's, he's, he's a children's television show character who's a dude in a big pink suit with big different pink spots on him and a bow tie and this grimace kind of looks like a pink grimace. Yeah. Yeah. And his whole shtick is no joke. And they make this joke all the time uh, in English programming. Uh, I remember there was a red nose day where EastEnders did a red nose day thing. I think we've talked about red nose day before, right? Um, I don't, think we have but yeah it's a it's a charity thing in english tv yeah and you get legitimate tv stars doing tv bits quote unquote out of canon Mm -hmm. and it's a joke it's always a joke and it's meant for charity it's great they raise tons of money there was an eastenders one where it was very serious it was between two characters being very serious and and it ends with how could you how, how did you and then the back door caves in as Mr. Blobby comes in and just wrecks everything. He, and that's his kind of his deal. He, 
he just comes into a scene and wrecks shit and leaves. <laughs> and that's the joke. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying. Yeah, it's kind of like if Grimace played the Kool-Aid man. He doesn't really make any noises other than like, obby, obby, obby. Blah, and, blah, uh, blah. There's a, a Big Fat Quiz of the Year uh, scene where Mr. Blobby comes on and terrifies one of the contestants. It's absolutely brilliant. He is pure unadulterated chaos because all he says is blobby 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 and he yep. just wrecks shit hold on mom mom i want to see can you do an impression of mr blobby no. <laughs> <laughs> you know there's only one impression of mr blobby 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 blobby, blobby. <laughs> So close, so close to getting my mom to say blubby, blubby, blubby. Anyway, <laughs> we get it. There's tons of characters all over fiction who go from being a background jabroni to weirdly pulling focus, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if you guys look at most of your TV shows and films, you'll be able to go like, oh, oh yeah, Barney Stinson pulled focus. Yeah. Right? Who cares about Ted? Basically, look at who they're doing merch of. Mm-hmm. Grogu. Yeah. The show was called The Mandalorian. We want that little baby doing things. I would like to see the baby. I would like to see the baby. That's a terrible Werner Herzog. <laughs> That's an Austrian Werner Herzog. Oh, hold on. I... No, I got to get into the right mindset to do a Herzog impression. Yeah, you got to stare into the darkness for like three hours. Yeah, wa really wa voice. <laughs> watch a WrestleMania. He loves WrestleMania, by the way. Of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> Runner Herzog is nothing if not surprising. <laughs> uh, you like from day to day, you learn something new about Herzog, and you go, "Oh, yeah." So, uh, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to say on background characters. So we end with levity before we get into the film. Yes. Now, a couple things about the plot of this movie. Um, so usually I'll be following along on the Wikipedia synopsis, but at the same time as it's a movie I haven't seen before, I don't want to spoil myself. So I'm a couple minutes into the movie and I'm like, okay, I'll just check like the first paragraph of the Wikipedia synopsis to make sure that it's matching the sort of level that I'm looking for. And then I read the first paragraph and I was like, I don't think I'm watching the right movie. Oh. The synopsis, the synopsis is very much um, big picture, right? It's not so much scene by scene. And this movie lives and dies on scene by scene. Yes. Yes. Um, like we said before, it is a farce. There's a lot of people going into rooms and out of rooms and diving behind things and so on and so forth and he mustn't see you and so on the actual plot not that important but, <laughs> <laughs> but big picture we have these gorgeous opening titles which i think like if you were a kid is the main thing that you know of this movie it did eventually become an actual animated cartoon as well as being the name of every subsequent movie despite it not really making sense no hold on not every subsequent movie one of um, them not not a shot in the dark right that's the yeah, actual yes. 
Yes, because they they did it because they were like, we're going to focus on Clouseau. And then they realized, oh, shit, wait, hold on. People didn't see this one as much as we thought they would because we put Clouseau in it, but we didn't name it a Pink Panther film. So they quickly changed gears and basically all the rest of the Pink Panther films are like the trial of the Pink Panther or the return of the Pink Panther, the revenge of the Pink Panther, the curse of the Pink Panther, stuff like that, right? Despite the fact that the Pink Panther is only in this film. Absolutely. I hated long opening sequences when I was a kid and now I absolutely love them. I wish they would come back, but they're not really in fashion anymore. Not currently. That's all I have to say. Not kind of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you have more leeway with um, end titles nowadays because people are more and more likely to uh, to actually sit through all of the end credits. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. Makes, that makes sense. And I mean, end credits are getting more and more elaborate as well anyway. Yeah. Um, so we start out with three different locations. We've got uh, Rome. There's a heist going on. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, uh, there's a man on the land from gangsters. And then, meanwhile, in Paris, I love this. I, I wish more movies would do this. This seems like a very sort of Soderbergh heist thing uh, to do. Uh, there's a package exchanging hands when we meet Inspector Clouseau. And I just realized I already skipped over the first scene. <laughs> the what? first scene is Princess Dalla, played by an actual Indian person. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, thankfully... The first scene is a little more representative of what it's supposed to be about. But this this whole conceit that Princess Dala and it being a fabulous diamond. So the Pink Panther is a fabulous diamond that was it's made enormous. 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 Slightly smaller than the baseball diamond, but yes. bigger than any other rock you would ever wear. Uh, it's made for the, I guess, not the, 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 the Raj of whatever part of India this is supposed to be for his daughter, the Princess Dala. And it's like, you're reading it and you're like, oh, okay, I guess maybe this is some slave labor happening here. Who knows? Yeah, the the conceit is that Princess Della has had to leave her country after uh, the regime was overthrown. And I was like, now listen, I'm not saying anything about the politics of anyone involved in this, but I don't think I'm on Princess Della's side here. No, just give back this fabulous rock. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So the whole movie is about she has the diamond, the thief is going to take the diamond, yada, yada, yada. We barely see it at all, which is good because it is, again, ludicrously large it is it's a really good MacGuffin mm-hmm. for the film uh, I mean a, the film's named after it it's, you know, but it's it's that you know show uh, tell don't show right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everybody wants it but we don't have to constantly see it yeah and that's the thing too is uh, we find out throughout the movie that it's going to be stolen so I'll still say is that it's hidden away safe in a state safe in a safe uh, but won't reveal any more than that so that's it's exactly like you say MacGuffin um, handled extremely well we know that it exists that's really all we need mm-hmm. 
And then we meet our ostensible star of the movie, David Niven, who is, um, I don't want to insult David Niven here, but I think they had the beauty at the time uh, because he is an international playboy that every woman is dying for. I can see that he's got this rakish charm about him. I think it's more the mystery around him than his actual physical looks. Yeah. Right? Somehow he's... You know, but it's that it's that yeah. where you're like, oh, Peter Capaldi's actually older than William Hartnell, and somehow he looks twenty years younger because, in the meantime, we like how to moisturize and wear sunblock and not smoke every second of the day. <laughs> yeah, and and it's he's he's got. I mean, he does have rakish charm. Mm-hmm, he is mm-hmm. from from all appearances fabulously wealthy. Yeah. But it's one of those things of, like, he's wealthy, he's a bachelor, he's older, so all, all of a sudden all these women are drawn to him because it's just, how is this older bachelor still single? And where does he get all his money from? Exactly. He's mysterious, he's cosmopolitan, he's European. But I wouldn't fuck him. <laughs> of course you wouldn't. <laughs> I would argue that there is one person who gets close to your type in this movie, and even that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so he's at this gorgeous, gorgeous ski resort in Italy, and while he's there, he meets Princess Della, now grown up and a Sicilian woman. <laughs> um, and oh no, wouldn't you know it? Her ten-year-old dog gets stolen. It's kidnapped. Disappeared. Oh no! The movie. I honestly thought that yeah. they'd already recovered the dog and just didn't mention it. Yeah, it's 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 a plot point in that it happens, but not yeah. in that it causes any great distress. Like it's it's merely the catalyst for David Niven to meet Princess Dala. Right, and he's a great skier, so he skis off after the dog napper but unfortunately injures himself and isn't able to capture him. And it's around this point that I went, oh, so he he set this up. It's absolutely clear. There's never any mystery about who is this jewel thief. And I honestly can't remember if they ever outright say it or if they just trust you because it's obvious from the very start. Oh, of course it's David Niven. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would like to. That. I would like to backtrack at this point because mm-hmm. I think the introduction of Capucine as Madame Clouseau mm-hmm. is yes. stellar. So in this meanwhile, 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 where we get to see David Niven, we get to see potential murderer Robert Wagner. I'm going to keep saying that, but, you know. Oh, we're going to get to Robert Wagner. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then in, in uh, Paris, we see... Uh, an exchange happening, right? And this fabulous woman in a big fur hat and giant sunglasses gets a package. And then she's chased by the police and she gets into a hotel and she hits, gets into the elevator. And then in the elevator, she quickly undresses, reverses all of her clothing. Turns out the hat is a purse. Turns out the trench coat she's wearing is actually a fabulous black dress when flipped the other way. 
And she puts on a, a turban because, you know, turbans were in at the time. And she gets off the elevator and then waits for the elevator as the, the les gendarmes, as they would say in Paris, <laughs> come up the stairs. And they're just like, oh, madam. And she's like, oh, yes, I must get out of the way because clearly it couldn't be the same woman. And you're just like, she is so in control, so poised. She has a second, she has a reveal waiting for her on the runway. <laughs> just gorgeous. She doesn't say it single word in this scene but she's commanding it that's exactly it she has the audience and the police in the palm of her hand beautiful gorgeous anyway yeah back to back to you back to the present <laughs> um but we also meet her husband around the same time where he uh he is inspector Clouseau. uh his french accent is let's be fair a little wobbly um mm-hmm. And he says, you know, we must catch Dosentum. Uh, he's obviously going to want to steal the Pink Panther. He'll be after Princess Dama. Uh, for you see, he is one of the greatest thieves of all time, and he always changes his, uh, his approach. So we know he'll be here, and that's why he, we have to go there. So yeah. Inspector Clouseau and his wife, Madame Clouseau, um, go to this ski lodge but you know it's also like a working holiday for them yeah he's there sort of undercover because he's figured out that all of the previous phantom thefts have happened at large gatherings of very wealthy people you know big society events and he figures ah the pink panther is this is the sure thing that the Phantom will want to steal. It's going to be held uh, with Princess Dala at this big society event in uh, the ski slopes of Italy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's sound logic, right? He, he gets a vacation. He brings along his wife, who he believes is just a, a housemaid. <laughs> Despite the it's fact very that she is. ten years, this comes up very late in the movie. I thought this was like basically their honeymoon from the way they treat each other, but no, they've been married ten years. He does not have a single clue. Ten years. She has luxurious furs. She has beautiful outfits. She is one of the most stunning women on the planet, and he is a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I should point out that the the outfits for the two main women in this are all Yves Saint Laurent. It's incredible the style. Oh, oh. To yep. to live back then and just be outfitted as time traveling Catherine Zeta Jones. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um but you know she says oh she just does it by being very thrifty out of the housekeeping money and things like that. And he's like yes this makes sense. <laughs> Oh, you can tell it's the 1960s, and he's a man. Yes. These characters all sort of intermingle and meet each other. And, you know, the princess is very indebted to David Niven. 
So she says, well, as a thank you for injuring yourself, trying to save my dog, why don't you come to this party? And it's very clear that he wants to, you know, get closer to her. And he says, well, it's so incredible that I have a private dinner with the princess. She's like, what are you talking about? This isn't a private dinner. And then all of the social climbers who've been dying to see Princess Dala come in. And it's obvious it's a very fancy party. Oh, my God. It's a very fancy party hosted by the most shrill woman imaginable. (laughs) That woman who she is. um, All right. Do you remember the 1960s Batman TV show? I've never seen it, but I know of it. Okay. So one of the things that you never see in the Batman movies, which existed back in the 1960s, is you know, Bruce Wayne, his parents died, right? Yeah. His butler raises him. At no point did you never ask yourself, doesn't he have other family? Mm-hmm. He does. He has lots of other family. And one <laughs> of those one of those family members is a woman called um I think it's like Aunt Harriet or something. Anyway, she's this slightly overweight, very fussy, bit of a shrill, like, oh, Bruce, you can't possibly be sitting here in the afternoon. We have to get to a party that I've just put together. And he's always like, no, not now, Aunt Harriet. And she says, oh, come, 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 come now, darling. You simply must meet my good friend, Selena Kyle. Oh, Selena Kyle. I know she's actually that kind of thing, right? Mm. She's this busybody back and like oh oh i throw these fabulous parties and simply you simply must come to my parties kind of woman and this is that woman this is the same <laughs> shrill in your face busybody nose in everyone's fucking business woman that you don't see in media anymore cuz you kind of hate her <laughs> I was originally going to compare her to one of Bernie Worcester's aunts, like Aunt Agatha, or Aunt Agatha, I suppose. Um, but the difference is all of Bernie Worcester's uh, aunts are absolutely terrifying to him because they are much, much cleverer than him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. to be fair, pretty much everyone is much, much cleverer yeah. than him. That's the point of the of the books that he quite hasn't grasped. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this wonderful party in which it's revealed that, you know, he's this international playboy and all this, and the princess uh, really puts him down in this way that I think is meant to be playful, but he goes, no, you've, you've deeply injured my feelings. You know, oh, well, I think people who are just playboys and play around all the time or trying to prove that they're men and they have something to prove and they need to go to a therapist. And he's like, that's not me. Anyway, my leg hurts. Bye. He's he's playing this character so strange because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of homosexual coding in it. Yeah. But at the same time... Yeah, but at the same time, he's also a bit of a sex perv. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Him and his nephew both. Learn to say uh, no. Learn to take a no. L- ladies, learn to punch. Yeah. Because these boys don't take no. No. 
but he's one of those men with sort of that Kendall black hair. So he, he seems to get a little bit more tanned and eye crinkled, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And, and by, by the end of his life, he was getting shorter and that's about it too. <laughs> yes. This sort of Captain Kirk type character appears on screen and I'm like, so when's Robert Wagner going to show up? <laughs> yes, Robert Wagner in this very handsome, if you don't know why we keep calling him a murderer, it's because he probably is. Yeah. His wife, Natalie Wood, uh, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Christopher Walken, also on the boat, has not talked about it to this day. Uh, to which I say, you know more than you're saying, Christopher Walken. Yeah, come on, Chris. Spill the fucking beans. Like, yeah. you can't protect Robert Wagner. There's no point. Nobody's got him as, like, the next big star anymore. Exactly. Robert Wagner is, throughout this, giving... So not only does he look like sort of somebody smushed William Shatner and Chris Pine together, but he's he's wearing a yellow sweater for a lot of it, and he is giving off this very <laughs> Captain Kirk vibe, where it's well, like... I mean, he does the ways of love on Earth. Yes, yes, he does forcibly kiss several women in this film. If 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 it wasn't that Cappuccino and Princess Stella were so obviously capable of handling him, it would be a lot more upsetting, I think. But instead, they treat him merely as an annoyance that they can handle, but just not right now. It's not a good time. No, no, and he's. I mean, thankfully, the movie makes it really clear that he is a sex pest. Like, he has next to no redeeming qualities about him. And we're, like, it's not making any bones about it. It's not saying, oh, look at this charming devil. It's very clearly being, hey, fuck this guy. He's clearly got none of the suave stuff that David Niven has, who's his uncle, in case we didn't say that. And he's been living off his uncle for quite some time because he also is an orphan um, and admits very casually that, yes, he's been fooling his uncle out of money because, you know, oh, he had a year where he was sick with a tropical illness. Uh, In the very first scene of the movie, we see him staging a graduation photo to make it look like he's actually been going to school and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I mean, the culmination of the film is sort of uncle and nephew learning that they're both sort of con men, thieves, swindlers, and then kind of gaining a mutual respect for each other of like, oh, maybe we can just join forces and get rich being dickbags. You and I, were not so different. Yeah, so that wraps up that plot line. Like, we don't even need to talk about him being a pest because it just keeps on happening. At the same time, so Princess Dalla has come over to Sir Charles's... uh, hotel room hotel suite and uh after telling him about 80 million times that no she doesn't drink she doesn't like to drink he's like but it's just champagne it's barely drinking and i was like wait what Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's famously easy to get drunk on I am a champagne person i love champagne i love bubbly i love prosecco the whole nine yards of it like good good stuff but yeah that shit can fuck you up without you realizing it the first time i ever drank it was my parents giving me um champagne as um as a celebration and i think i think my dad was like try it with orange juice you'll like it and so i guess it was technically a mimosa 
And mm-hmm. I didn't know that you weren't, I was like maybe 12 or 13. And I didn't know that you weren't supposed to drink alcohol like you drink orange juice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I immediately got smashed. Yeah, my mom and I are very big mimosa people. <laughs> we, like whenever I go up to her place, I will grab a bottle of bubbly and a big thing of pulpy orange juice because we love the pulp. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's just our go-to thing on the weekend. We wake up, we start having mimosas. We'll just do mimosas because we can. Yes, you know, why not? Just have a little bit of Mm Hmm. So anyway... He gets her smashed on mimosas. And she sort of rolls around on a tiger skin run. See, this is what I'm talking about, the aesthetic of this movie. Let's ignore the fact that, like, she didn't really want to drink and all of that me sort of leching on her. But, like, Claudia Cardinal in a black dress rolling about in front of a fire. Please, please, give me more of this. Give me Ugh. holstered walls and mint green blue wallpaper and this rustic chalet with an enormous roaring fire. It's all just incredibly beautiful. She is stunning. She is and and she's got that like when when they cut to her being drunk Mm -hmm. she's got that beautifully disheveled hair of like oh it's starting to fall out of her her perfectly like uh perfectly set bun that she has but in such a way that it's like oh look at this strand framing her face look it's just it's so elegant even in her most disheveled state she is gorgeous and she's sort of teasing him too she's like no i won't have another drink because i know that you're going to seduce me and i'd like to see how you do it which is just again adorable charming effervescent Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the way he kisses her just kind of happens, and you go, oh. Yeah. And it's so passionless. Yes. <laughs> just like their two mouths came together, and they held there for three seconds, and they came apart. Yep. And just, no. No. I will not attempt to describe what is probably the best scene of the movie, which is, again, the aforementioned farce of you mustn't let my husband see you, but if you watch any scene from this movie, watch that scene. It's incredible. And again, Capuchin is gluing it all together with her performance. Oh, yeah. And just, I I get the impression that her, that Madame Clouseau and Inspector Clouseau have probably never had sex. <laughs> <laughs> she is See, this so is the honeymoon vibe I was talking about, yeah. She is so good at manipulating him into doing because he is clearly head over heels in love with him her he sees her as a goddess upon the earth and he's just like i am the luckiest man in the world to be married to this woman i will do anything so at one point she's like oh i could do with a glass of milk and he's like ah i will get you a glass of milk from downstairs and he goes into just like this monologue about how he's going to get her a glass of milk because he (laughs) loves her so much and of course, yeah, wackiness ensues. There's also, you know, this whole sexual undertone of every single one of their interactions where she's like, oh, I need him out of the room for a second. I'll just tell him that I need to take a hot bath because you know, darling, how it makes me relax. And 
oh, I can't possibly die. Like, I'm too cold, and so on and so forth. Yeah, my, my feet are cold. Or, oh, I'm, I, I've got a bit of a headache, at which point he says, ah, I know exactly how to release <laughs> yeah. the tension of your headache. And you sit there going, oh, is he talking about fucking the headache out of her? At which point you start to hear, you think, okay, is he going to fuck the headache out? Is he going to massage her? No. You hear the screechiest, most awful violin playing possible. He's brought his own fucking violin that he does not know how to play. And apparently <laughs> nobody has ever told him that he can't play it. <laughs> yes, it's the same thing. She's like, oh, darling, I love it when you play the violin. It's, it's such a good joke because she and he sell it so well of clearly she married him only because he is the inspector and this way she can keep close tabs on his activities and send that to the phantom david nevin so he can always stay one step ahead of clouseau yeah and this is something that's actually never stated outright it just trusts you again to figure out what her game is it's it's some genius genius acting absolutely especially when you consider so much of it was improvised but it's not improvised in sort of a Judd Apatow way where it's just keep the camera running no this is still very a classic Hollywood of different setups and things like that so they make it look so incredibly effortless well because this is also a film from the time where it's more staged like a play right really long long shots let's just set the camera right here in the center of the room and have the actors do their things wherever they need to on this set much like a sitcom really mm -hmm. yes. you could do this as a three camera sitcom quite easily you're absolutely right on that it's um but we don't make movies like this anymore because imagine having to go through this what is it like 10 minute scene that's one long shot of Peter Sellers doing some of the funniest shit you've ever seen and keeping a straight goddamn face. Yes. And that's the thing. Cappuccino is so brilliant in this because the way her body moves, it's not just that she's running from place to place and things like that, but things like, you know, he'll put her on the bed and he'll say, oh, you know, let me, let me help you with that stress. And she'll effortlessly slide out from underneath him just like mm -hmm. she's liquid it's the sort of um a Staren rogers thing where she's doing it backwards and he heals he he is undoubtedly the star but she is doing all of this work to support him yeah i mean it's just effortless on her part and his part he's so effortlessly funny and she's so effortlessly the straight man to his funny mm-hmm and that's the thing, she's got sort of like the Grace Kelly look and beauty, but she's got this animism that you wouldn't have expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you ever see Grace Kelly holding a potted plant, exactly. trying, <laughs> trying to hide a man under the bed? Exactly. She's flustered, but at the same time, she's so poised and in control. So be because of all this sort of, you know, back and forth, doors opening and closing, and the fact that um, 
the uncle and nephew are actually sharing the same hotel suite. Uh, the nephew discovers that Sir Charles is, in fact, the Phantom because, and this is the stupid wet bandit shit again, the Phantom always leaves a single monogrammed love at the crime scene. And so he finds his kit complete with single monogrammed love. <laughs> again, this is what makes it incredibly easy to pin every crime on you if you're ever caught. Oh, it it's that but this is this is the gentleman thief aspect of it, right? It's got it has to David Niven brings that to the character. Yeah, it has to be with a monogrammed glove. He has to have this calling card that announces that you you have been so rightly robbed by the phantom. Think yourself lucky to have such a an elegant thief come to your paltry house. It's the tenth generation of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the big climax is the princess is throwing a big costume party. She's leaving town the next day. Everybody's certain the jewel's never been uh, taken yet this is going to be the time that they're taking it at a costume party. What a brilliant idea, right? Yeah. Uh, Inspector Clouseau is there in full armor. You see it in the first shot and you're like, oh, of course, of course. Yeah, of, of course, because Inspector Clouseau sees himself as a hero. Naturally, he would dress as a knight. Is it like a legit suit of armor? Probably because he's going for authenticity, which means he is neither stealthy nor mobile. And that's the joke. Yes. Uh, there are two people in gorilla suits. One is Sir Charles. One is the British ambassador, which leads to a very embarrassing mix-up. Well, three people in gorilla suits. Yes, but only two gorilla suits. Because uh, the nephew takes it from... Uh, the English ambassador. So both mm -hmm. of them are in gorilla suits. They sneak over to the safe where the uh, necklace is hidden and suddenly they're doing a mirror routine, which is really great. Uh, it would be better if they were actually more synchronized. I'm kind of surprised they went with this take. Yeah, it's, it's a mirror routine where both of the characters know there isn't a mirror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of the wildest part about it because they walk around and they check to make sure and they actively look at each other and yet at no point do they say hey hold on a second you fuck <laughs> and at the same time all of the lights go out in the place so you know Inspector Clouseau is falling all over the place and <laughs> they give a line to this one servant which I love so much where uh, one of the servants says, like, it's time to set up the fireworks display. It's like, but it's not midnight yet. Oh, well, she turned out all the lights. She must have changed her mind. <laughs> when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? So, of course, Clouseau finds a firecracker that I thought at first was a stick of dynamite. <laughs> it, it very much has the aesthetic of the film cartoon. Yes. Big stick, long... Uh, Fizzing fuse. Fuse, that's the word I was looking for. The fuse. Yeah, so he lights it, and this candle's acting awfully funny, and then of course he's holding it, and it launches directly into the box of other fireworks. Things go crazy. People are fighting to leave the party. It's absolute madness. 
Uh, and throughout this all, they're trying to uh, rob the safe. Inspector Clouseau arrives there just in time to arrest them both. But there's no necklace. <gasps> what? Both Sir Charles and George, the nephew, are put on trial for uh, the theft of the necklace. Never mind that they can't find it, you know. It's at this point that Inspector Clouseau is called as a witness, and I went, oh, so this is how it's going to end. They revealed that there was more than one person who was uh, at every single one of these parties other than Charles Lytton. In fact, Inspector Clouseau was also at every single one of those parties. And his wife, it's a fabulously rich life, dropping thousands of dollars at East Saint Laurent. Nice product placement there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I couldn't have possibly done it. And he reaches for his hanky and out drops the pink panther. <laughs> what? It's resolved that Princess Dalla, in fact, actually stole it herself because her country was trying to get it back, saying it actually belonged to the people. They planted it on Inspector Clouseau. She gets away with Sir Charles Lytton and George in a quasi-incestuous scene. It's revealed that Inspector Clouseau, sure, he's been pinned as the Phantom, but LL Cool P, ladies love cool phantoms, and he's absolutely mobbed by women on the way out. So sure, he's going to go to prison, but they say the next time the Phantom robs someone, that means his name will be cleared, and he has all of these fangirls now. So he goes, yeah, it's me. You would never believe how I did it. (laughs) (laughs) This is a delight of a movie. It is too long. It's almost two hours. I think this should have been cut down to a neat 90 minutes, but this is an absolute confection, a bonbon of a movie. Yeah, there are definitely scenes and things that happen, scenes that take too long, scenes that (laughs) just don't need to exist. For example, the five-minute musical interlude that happens in the middle where we get a, a singer performing to us, the audience, and not to the audience in the chalet that she's singing to, who are all behind her. Yes. (laughs) Who are clapping along with the music. Peter Sellers is there, and he does, like, some of the worst dancing in the world. Very white man, doesn't know his left. yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Love it, because it also really helps to cement him as his character. But, yeah, there's definitely a lot that could be trimmed for a much tighter film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, in terms of like the the mirror scenes with the gorilla costume, you can shorten that up a bit, right? You yeah. can shorten a lot of these sort of back forth, back forth, back forth, back forth. Oh, another back forth, back forth kind of you know, mistaken identity and mm-hmm. outs. But yeah, it's it's a delight of a film. Uh, it's an excellent winter movie, I would argue, too, because it all takes place at this gorgeous chalet, and mm-hmm. it's a very cozy type movie. Everybody's wearing uh, just the most gorgeous ski wear and things like that. Yeah, right, and it it has that feeling of that 60s opulence, right? Yeah. It's not over the top, it's not super flashy, but it's that comfortable kind of opulence of 
oh, I'm sure if I put on a nice dress or a nice suit, I could easily sneak in with this crowd and just have a fantastic night. And at the same time, it's that these people don't know that their world is about to be basically ended by a new generation as well. Yeah. 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 So a question before we get to the main question, would you like to continue on this series of films later on during the podcast? I would, because I'm very intrigued by where this movie, where this movie series goes from here. They made up something like seven movies. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know that it continues to follow Inspector Clouseau and his Pratt Falls and whatnot. But I'm, I'm very interested in going, okay, you've made this fabulously popular movie. What's your next step? Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say, uh, since the focus becomes very much more about Clouseau, the silliness of him, his performances, goes up. The whole movie becomes so much more silly. And I would actually say so much more camp as they continue. The yep. one giant issue going into, the, into future films there is, is... Is it a Japanese sidekick? Yes. Uh, Kato, his sort of sidekick who lives with him, who he's told his, his, I mean, the jokes around Kato and involving Kato are good because he tells Kato, you must attack me so that I'm always on the way. <laughs> right. But it, it has to be random. It has to be unplanned. I, I can be sleeping. I could be eating. I could just come in the door, but you must attack me to keep me sharp as ever right? Which is a great joke. It happens so much and always at the wrong time, of course. Mm-hmm. One small issue with that is he does refer to him as, and I apologize for saying this, guys, my little yellow friend. Oh, that was worse than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's it's a very of its time, like, like, uh, and so I'm giving you the heads up of that. And there is some, because one of the things you do find out about Clouseau is that he sees himself as a master of disguise. And in oh one of the God. films, they, they do go to Japan and he does disguise himself as a Japanese person. So, yeah, those, these are the warnings I'm giving you ahead of time for mm-hmm. the film series and that it gets problematic in the way that we nowadays we'll look at it and go that's real bad i am so glad we've grown so much since then i would argue the most famous example of this is from another blake edwards movie with mickey rooney and breakfast at tiffany's where it is a a stain on an otherwise incredibly beloved movie yes Right. Uh, and yeah. unfortunately, Blake Edwards being the director for most of the sequels of the Pink Panther, yeah, doesn't really doesn't really help too much. Right. Yes. <laughs> so I leave it up to both the audience and you, Sarah, as to whether or not we wish to continue. I'm fairly certain uh, the, se- the next sequel, A Shot in the Dark, is low on both of those things because it takes place at a resort in Paris, uh, not in Paris, in France. Mm-hmm. Paris, France? No, not in Paris, France. In Paris. In... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Who's on first? Is the Pink Panther camp? Uh, 
I think the Pink Panther is not camp, but Inspector Clouseau is. Because Inspector Clouseau is... Uh, I don't want to say slapstick, because that that doesn't feel right. I think it's the key that Inspector Clouseau is among this crowd of very otherwise serious people. He has accidentally stumbled into the wrong movie. The movie itself, I think, is too straightforward heist movie to be camp. But Inspector Clouseau, in that world, yes. How about you? What do you think? You basically read my mind with that. <laughs> Watch, watching the film, I, I did come out saying, it's gorgeous, it's opulent. I think what's happening is that Inspector Clouseau is the comedy character. And before I did say that, that Capucine was the straight man to his comedy, mm-hmm. but it's more like the film is the straight man to his comedy. Yes. Everybody, Nothing, everything. All of the farce is fueled by him, by him, you know, coming in at the wrong time or something like that. And he's so serious and deadpan about kind of this weird idea that he has he has so much confidence in his ability. He's so convinced that he is he is a great detective, that he will solve this case, that he does belong here with all these high society people, that his wife is a simple housekeeper, right? He has absolute conviction in what he knows. And to everyone else in the world, they see the truth. And nobody has the heart to kind of break it to him that, no, you're a buffoon. Your wife is somehow fabulously wealthy. You can't play the violin for shit. (laughs) But nobody's going to tell you. We're going to keep on allowing you to live in this bubble of ignorance. Yeah. So Inspector Clouseau, camp, very camp. The film as a whole, not camp, or at least not camp enough. But I will say again, I'm going to be returning to this. This movie is an absolute delight. Mm -hmm. So in the future, in the near future, maybe, who knows, I think we'll move on to A Shot in the Dark at some point. I look forward to it. Yeah. But for now, thank you for joining us today on our exploration of the Pink Panther. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice. Leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes. And next week, we will be discussing last year's, this is probably the most recent film we've ever done then, since we've moved from the earliest film. This is the most recent. Venom, colon, Let There Be Carnage, or... Venom, colon, love will tear us apart. Or, as we've written down in our notes, Venom 2, colon, Venomier. (laughs) I was going to jump in there with, oh my God, Sam, I love romantic comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I've heard a lot of things. I've seen the first film. I'm going to rewatch the first film before we get to the second film as well. Because I just, I need... I need to get in the right headspace, but uh, have you seen the first film? Uh, no, but I think I've said previously uh, on the show that I have uh, read fanfic for the first one. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm comfortable with having that out there. <laughs> um, that, who cares? I'll probably, I'll probably 
uh, watched the first one as well in uh, in preparation for this, simply because I've heard so many delightful things about Tom Hardy's performances in these movies. I think Tom Hardy definitely is the shining star of the first film, which is great because he is the star of the first film as well. Yeah. Um, why is Michelle Williams here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like you'll watch that film and not just be like, why are you here? But also why, why are you even here? Because the film kind of doesn't need her. <laughs> After watching it a couple years ago for the first time, my biggest thought from it, from the first film was this feels like a film from 2004. Really? Is it just the soniness of it all? There's, you know, have you seen like Daredevil, Electra, the Fantastic Four films that all came out around that time? Uh, I haven't seen Electra, but I've seen the other ones. Okay, you know the feeling that those movies have. Yes, like uh, there's a very... shot in Vancouver and not very good. Yeah, there's that weird kind of. It feels low budget, even though it's mm-hmm. not low budget. Venom definitely has that feeling of this this would have been made in 2004 and it would have been making in tons of money in 2004 but here we are in 2021 and god i said 2021 what am i 70 <laughs> and yeah the year of our lord <laughs> 2021 as the romans would write it m I, I don't even know my Roman numerals good enough to finish M-X-X-I. that joke. M-X-X-I. Is it? Oh, M-X-X-I. Yeah. M-M-X-X-I. There we go. Uh, anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this. Two films in a row. Let's uh, crush these out and yeah. discuss Venom 2 because from a lot of the reviews I've seen, hopefully those people actually know what camp is. So we can both come out saying, oh yeah, this is camp. But we'll see. I'm I'm excited. This has been on the the docket for a while, shall we say. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, the audience, can continue the discussion on our Twitter and our Instagram. I am at Reese Indigo, R-H-Y-S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at sour citrus lady you can follow the pod on at is it camp pod until next week wait an hour before swimming watch out for snakes and stay camp ta bye